It's Friday, December 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Earlier this year, many eyes were on Europe as they began to open their economies and roll out contact tracing apps across various countries there. Germany was one of the first to release their app, but its effectiveness will depend on how many people actually download and use it. Boyan Penchevsky, Germany correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the apps work and the privacy concerns that come with it. Next, at the beginning of the year, the famous flagship store for Tiffany & Company in New York had to move to a new location so the building could be renovated. While the move to a temporary location was short, it took dozens of security guards, hundreds of cameras, and a vow of secrecy from workers to move 114,000 gems without getting robbed. James Barron, reporter for the New York Times, joins us for how Tiffany pulled off this big move and got it all done before the time of opening Monday morning. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Once you switched on and you have the app downloaded and you have the app on, then the app is sort of sending a Bluetooth signal around you. And anyone else with an app will receive that signal if they're using the app. Joining us now is Boyan Panchevsky, German correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Boyan. Hey, good to be here. wanted to talk about some of the contact tracing apps that have launched across Europe. Here in the United States, we're expecting to do something very similar. I think a lot of states are working on their own apps, so it's going to be pretty crazy if we have 50 different apps trying to track people, but we'll have to see how that all rolls out. We're kind of in the early stages still. So there in Europe, there are already a few that have been released. Germany became the largest Western country to launch their contact tracing smartphone app. Tell us a little bit about that one. Here, European countries, each of them are doing their own apps, which are not necessarily compatible with each other, not always. And because Europe is tightly integrated, it's not one country like the United States, but people travel across for work, for everything intensely. So I think it will be a similar dilemma for the authorities when they have a bunch of different apps. Now, the thing with the German app is that obviously Germany is is the most populous country smack in the middle of the continent. And it has waited uh, fairly long to release the app because there are huge privacy concerns in this country. People are very much concerned about data privacy. So the original proposal from the government had to be amended many times in order to sort of comply with these very strict data privacy recommendations. They launched it yesterday. And amazingly, since yesterday, they've had around over 6 million downloads, 6.5 million, I think, until this evening in a country of 83 million. That is pretty good, actually, because the French app was launched two weeks ago, and it's only had 1.7 million downloads in those two weeks. So the Germans seem to be eager to download the app and use it. And we're about to see if the app becomes useful because these apps really get useful when a lot of people use them and therefore their effect is amplified. That's the important thing is it needs widespread adoption to be effective. Experts were estimating that 60% of a country's population would need to use the app for it to be effective in preventing some type of second wave or something. And the use of the app there in Germany specifically is voluntary. I guess some numbers coming out from people talking about it, they said 41% of Germans have been willing to download it, while 46% said they wouldn't use it. So, I mean, right away, that's going to be a big 
hurdle to overcome. And similarly, in the United States, I know there's a lot of privacy-minded people in the United States that are already saying the same thing. I don't want to download an app. I don't want people to track me. In the United States, basically, consumers don't mind giving their data to private companies like Google, Facebook, or Twitter, or whatever. But they are wary of giving their data to the government. Whereas in Europe, it's kind of both. People don't like giving their data to anyone. However, you know, what you said is true. About 46% of Germans said in a survey that they would not download the app. Now, it remains to be seen. But... However, the 60% of penetration that's required for the app to basically stop the spread of the epidemic, that is a figure that's only valid if all other measures are not really in place. And the other measures include basically social distancing, heightened hygiene, and stuff like that. And these are things that people are actually doing. They're wearing masks here in Berlin, for example. You have to wear a mask if you go to a supermarket. You have to wear a mask if you use the public transport system. So you've got all sorts of measures that are already in place and people have changed their behavior. So these figures have to be taken with a pinch of salt. I spoke to an epidemiologist here in Germany who told me that actually if people would wash their hands regularly and wear masks when they're supposed to wear them and keep social distancing in public as much as they could and so on, then only 20% of people would need to actually download the app in order for the app to make a huge impact on curbing the contagion. That's very interesting, too, because as you mentioned, a lot of people are getting used to doing those other things. So hopefully at least a moderate adoption of the app would help a lot. Tell us how the app works. It connects using Bluetooth with other phones. If you're sitting next to somebody For longer than 15 minutes, it connects those phones. So later on, if there's an outbreak, it knows you were with that person. Tell us how it works. Basically, this is how the German app works. There are different type of apps, different type of technologies. You know, some apps are actually using GPS data, for example, in Asia, and that would be considered intrusive in this country so that they couldn't use that. Essentially, they use the Bluetooth technology, which is this kind of wireless technology this wireless system that you can switch on on your mobile if you have an iPhone or a Samsung or whatever you have they all have the option to switch on the Bluetooth connection and once you switch it on and you have the app downloaded and you have the app on then the app is sort of sending a Bluetooth signal around you and anyone else with an app will receive that signal if they're using the app so if your two phones are in proximity of each other, which is closer than two meters, we have the metric system, so that's two meters. And if you stay in that proximity for over 15 minutes, then the apps will sort of save each other's codes. With that Bluetooth signal goes a little code that the other mobile phone is recording. And then if you go back home and you do a coronavirus test and it turns out you're positive, then you have the option of entering your diagnose in the actual app. You can tell the app, oh God, I've, I've become infected. Then if you choose to do that, then the app will send out this signal through the internet this time to every other app that had been in your proximity and that had saved your code. So people will not know who you are because the code is anonymized. They will not know that this particular person got infected. Your identity will be kept secret, but they will have a little message pop up on their screen saying you had been exposed to someone 
who has now been confirmed to have the coronavirus. And then, of course, on the back of that, you can decide to do a test yourself or you can decide to change your behavior perhaps and stay at home for the next week or two until you're all clear so you don't infect anyone else. Obviously, it's up to the people to decide what they do. Nobody will actually force them. And there is no sort of central record of these infections. So it, it's very much based on, on people doing the right thing. The technology works in a way that they claim they've adapted it so you don't get too many false alarms, you know, because, for example, the app needs to learn that if you're living in your apartment and then perhaps in the apartment next door, someone else is using the app. And you, if you if you sort of stand right next to the wall, you could actually come into that proximity and the app has ways of knowing that this is a person in another apartment so it doesn't trigger the alarm. It's going to be interesting to see the rollout and how quickly people adopt to us. I know people in the United States are keeping a close eye on it. Like I said, we're getting ready to roll these same types of apps out. So all eyes are going to be on Europe and you see how it goes to see if it's something that people are going to adopt here in the United States. Boyan Panchevsky, Germany correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you were across the street and you were hoping to plan a heist here, you couldn't see what, when the jewelry started coming out of the one door and going in the other. Joining us now is James Barron, reporter for the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, James. Good to be with you. Tiffany & Company is renovating their flagship store on Fifth Avenue. And in order to keep operating in the meantime... They're moving to a temporary space, but what they had to do was move uh, hundreds of thousands of gems and, and individual units uh, over. And obviously, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars here, high-priced uh, jewelry and whatnot. Uh, and so the security measures that were taken to have this go off without a hitch or, or you know nothing getting stolen were just so high. Uh, James, tell us a little bit about what Tiffany & Company had to do to secure all of their jewelry. They had 30 of their own security people who were standing watch. Uh, the NYPD put a, uh, a number of officers, uh, uniformed and I'm pretty sure plain clothes, uh, on the sidewalk. These two the stores, the, the, in effect, back door of these of the famous Tiffany store, the one you know if you know uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. The back door there is where all of this was coming out from. It only had to go, as you said, about 50 feet into the door of the new store. The new store used to be a Nike store. Nike moved out. Tiffany is subleasing it. It, it didn't have to go very far, but it had to get there on a public sidewalk, and that was the challenge. So as I say, there were uniformed NYPD officers there, and I think there were probably some plainclothes officers. There was this guy in jeans kind of down the sidewalk just standing looking at the Tiffany windows, and he had a, an earphone in his ear like a Walkman earphone. I don't think he was just a pedestrian passing by. But that was the thing. When, when nothing was being moved... That sidewalk was open. Now, to be sure, 
there is a scaffolding, uh, uh, the kind of box you see when a building's going, uh, undergoing renovation. The Tiffany building is about to start. They put the scaffolding up, so that blocked the view from across the street. And then they also put a little tent, the kind of white tent that they can drive a VIP limousine into if there's a VIP so that you can't see the the VIP getting out of the limo. They put one of those at the end of the scaffolding so that if you were across the street and you were hoping to plan a heist here, you couldn't see when the jewelry started coming out of the one door and going in the other. In other words, if you had somebody who thought they could run down the sidewalk and grab something, well, for starters, you wouldn't know when to have them start the 50-yard dash, let's say. Another thing was, if you tried to do some sort of uh, grab uh, thing where you were trying to grab some, they were in locked carts. Everything was carefully inventoried before it went out the one door and and placed in boxes in carts that were locked and then the carts were sealed with shrink wrap so that if you could tell immediately when it got to the new store if it had been tampered with the shrink wrap wouldn't was like a a seal like on a on a colonial era colonial era letter you know how they used to seal them with wax so you could tell immediately if the seal had been broken right. well this time it was shrink wrap on these on these carts and they did this all in about 18 hours when the store closed on a sunday and then reopened the next day on monday at their normal opening time so they had to do move fairly quickly to get so much moved and obviously with all the security they even had their employees keep it secret. They couldn't say anything about it. They also had officials monitor social media for any hints of potential theft and whatnot. They were monitoring certain keywords such as move and 727 Fifth Avenue. So, I mean, they were really, really going above and beyond to make sure they were taking care of this stuff. Tell us about some of the items that were moved and the prices of some of these items. Well, there was uh, an engagement ring that came from off the second floor, and it was a fairly large um, ring as these things go. Um, uh, it uh, we can just skip the the carat weight and go straight to the to the bottom line. The price on that one was two point four seven million dollars. Wow! If you know your carats, uh, that was ten point six four carats. It had a, a large ring and then a large diamond and then some some smaller ones um, around it. Um, I figured out later that that uh, that many carats is about as much as a bullet. Um, you know, this was a a large ring, um, so there was that. But I mean, there was a, a diamond necklace that they packed uh, several of them, I think, but certainly one that I watched. Uh, that, that they sell for $165,000. Wow. Um, they have rings that, for them, are, are modestly priced. Uh, they spell the word love in little diamonds. Those go for $4,000. Um, it, it was all of these things that had to be packed and inventoried and then moved. 
and so it was a real operation, but they had 400 employees, some of whom had volunteered to come in that day. They weren't all the salespeople who had been working. And uh, and so some of it in at first, after the store closed, was um, just the inventorying. Uh, they had barcode scanners attached to laptop computers, and so they scanned everything in uh, and then put them in the boxes and onto the carts as, that I mentioned before. Uh, but but that looked to me like the, that was the most. Um, time-consuming and probably um, nerve-wracking part for the people doing it because they had to be sure everything got in. They couldn't leave anything behind. They said, once you leave the building, you can't go back and no one's going to go back and look. So they had to make sure everything went out. And then once they got to the new store, they had to reconcile it. In other words, they had printouts of the listings they that that had been created when they when they scanned everything in the old store and now they had to make sure it got to the new store and it all went off without a hitch from my understanding which i mean you know like i said these are just the extreme measures that you need to take to protect so many valuable items and according to tiffany they said everything was all good and squared away and everything made it there just fine that's what they told me on Monday. And in fact, the move actually went faster than the 18 hours between closing time on Sunday and opening time on Monday. Uh, it got there, uh, everything got there, I would think, in about half that time. But then there was the setting up. Right. I mean, again, it's, it's Tiffany's. They place everything very carefully. They have a, a visual team. Uh, and Reed Krakow, who's their chief artistic officer, has worked very hard on the look of, of Tiffany's. He was the man that some people in fashion call the next Tom Ford back when he was the creative director at Coach. So now he's at Tiffany's, and, and he has, uh, has given it a look and has a team that goes to each of the counters and, and sees that everything is correctly placed. Uh, we watched them place that $2.4 million ring uh, in, in the counter uh, and, and, you know, make sure that they had the right little um, frame for it to sit on and that the box was, was just right and that, there, and that it was clean, that there, were no, uh, there was no prints on it. And at one yeah. point, uh, there was a hair that had gotten on it. That ring is big enough that I, that it'll snag a hair if you're not careful, <laughs> and um, and they took care of all that. Um, but then they had to do it for everything in the store. They yeah. had to work their way through the store, and that's the part that kept the lights on and kept them there all night. Well, it is Tiffany, so it all does have to be perfect. But it's just an interesting look at all the security measures that had to go into making this move happen. James Barron, reporter for the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.